0: Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series concerning the five solars. These five statements that Martin Luther and the Reformers put together for the purpose of restoring. And protecting and moving forward the work of God and the lives of God's people. You may remember that by the time Martin Luther nails the 95 proposals or let's talk about it, comments and statements, the 95 theses, to the door of the uh, the, uh, Church of Wittenberg he is beginning to see that there are discrepancies, deviations, things that have been added to, taken away from the Word of God. And so, as time moved on and the church opposed what Martin Luther was saying and wanted to speak about, and as the reformers began to bring these kinds of things, attention to the people, these five solas were formulated. And again, they had to do with the recovery and the protection and the promotion of biblical truth. You remember what they are, sola scriptura, sola gratia. Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo gratia, Gloria. You can tell I don't speak German. They didn't get that, did they, huh? It's just, that was Greek, that wasn't German. They still didn't get, okay, Latin. <laughs> and we're doing well, aren't we? And so... These five solos can be stated in one sentence. And I think the sentence will be put up on the screen just in a moment. Is that right? Yeah, there it is. Go on to the sentence. You're getting there. Okay, it's in your notes. <clears throat> so let's put the five solos together in a sentence. And the reason I wanted to do this is to accentuate the truth that these represent as not five individual statements or truths, but a statement of one truth. These collectively are a statement of one truth. So, this is just how I have done it. You may have done it a different way. The scriptures alone reveal that God justifies and saves his people by grace alone, received by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so this is a statement, as I said, that comprises one truth. And if any one of these five alones is tampered with in any way, is either subtracted from or added to, what happens is it alters the sentence And destroys the entire truth. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what the reformers were so insistent upon as they saw these basic biblical truths being undermined through traditions and teachings and practices that weren't biblical. And so this morning we're going to deal with Christos Solos, sorry, Solos Christos, which means Christ alone. And, and I just have to tell you this, and I think you may already know this. This is a, a statement that begins in Genesis 1.1. And the truth of this continues all the way to the last verse of Revelation 22. This is the subject of the Bible. Christ alone. And so how does anyone speak about such a monumental subject as this in the few moments that we have? That's a tough one. But we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit will anoint the speaker, anoint our ears, and that at the end of the time together, we won't as much see what's wrong with the teaching of the church in Martin Luther's day, which continues today. But will more, more see where any area, any thought, word, or deed, anything about my life or your life is in any way deviating from Christ alone. And we all know that this is happening. And so as we speak this morning, hopefully, mostly, let's not listen for, you see, I knew it was wrong, I knew it was wrong, I knew it was wrong. Yep, yep, that's what they say. Let's think about it and receive it as God speaking to each one of us by the Spirit concerning to what extent are we doing the same thing. So Christ alone. In these five solas, the main, and let's put that other little, uh, that artwork up. The main issue here with the reformers was this. The exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. That's what was being promoted through these five solas. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses one and 12, 11 and 12. And let's listen to this word of the Apostle Peter. And, and think about this in relation to today's pluralism, to today's open-mindedness to everything, to today's understanding or thought or attitude that anything that is narrow or exclusive is wrong, at least when it comes to the preaching of the Word of God. And so the apostle says, Christ is the stone that was rejected by you. He's talking to the Pharisees. And then he says this in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else. No other name? Now how many of us have participated in conversations with other folks concerning our faith or their faith? And how many of us have been a little hesitant to be so narrow-minded and dogmatic? The Word of God says there is no other name and there is no one else by which we may must be saved and so that's something that we not only are to live out in our lives through our thoughts words and deeds every thought of mine every deed of mine every word of mine should say no one else no other name christ alone he's exclusive and that's the message that we are to be sharing with others. And sometimes when you share it, Mo, at least smile when you say it. Smile. Because when you say this kind of a thing, you are going to get a very strong backlash. How many of you in this congregation have experienced strong backlash against this kind of presentation? Yes. Why? Because there is an enemy called Satan who opposes the word of God through the cultures of this world and through the flesh and through fallen humanity. See, this is the same question that Jesus was asking the disciples in Matthew 16, 16. You remember, they were all together together. And he says, who do men say that I am? And there's some answers. And then Jesus ta- turns to the disciples and says to them, who do you say that I am? In other words, am I your exclusive savior? And there is no other name and there is no one else that you are looking to for your salvation and walk with God. An eternal home in heaven. Or is there another way? Or are you looking to other things? Jesus was asking that. Who do you say that I am? I think this morning that's probably the most important question that we need to ask ourselves. Who is Jesus to me? And you remember the answer Peter gives in Matthew sixteen sixteen. What does he say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this answer, let's put the little up there. In this answer contains or is stated the twin truths, two truths that are equal to one another upon which the exclusivity of Christ rests. There are two truths upon which the exclusivity of Christ rests. And that is this: that Christ is supreme in his person and that he is sufficient in his work. These are two truths, one of which when removed, the exclusivity as you can see from on the uh, on the screen up here, the exclusivity of Christ falls if either one of these is tampered with to any extent the entire issue of the exclusivity of Christ becomes out of balance and will slip away or fall off. And so what is meant by the exclusivity of Christ? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We're talking about the supremacy of the person of Christ and the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ. So let's now look at scripture alone to see how these twin truths are declared to us, how Scripture alone declares the exclusivity of Christ himself, of Christ alone. First, let's look at the supremacy of Christ. Because we must begin with his person. Because what Jesus does is a result of and is effective because of his person. So first we look at the supremacy of Christ. You see, when Peter said you are the son of the living God, he was declaring the most significant and fundamental truth about the person of Christ. If we were to say what's the most important thing about Jesus, some people would say he loves and so on and all those are fine. But that's not the central issue. That's not the core revelation. That's not the most fundamental truth that we need to have and understand and be proclaiming in our lives. What is the most fundamental truth about Jesus is his divinity. His divinity, in fact, that's where he is attacked, remember, by the heresies, in his divinity. And so, everything hangs Everything rests upon this one fact. Is Jesus divine? Is he the eternal, unbeginning, never ending Son of God? Equal with the Father and the Spirit. One of the three persons. Of the one Godhead. Is he that person? Is he divine? The most significant truth about Jesus is in his person as the son of God. See that means this. That Christ alone has the exclusive ability and the exclusive right to save his people. Why? Why? because no one else is divine no one else can represent an image god the father perfectly everyone else does so to some extent but in a shadowy imperfect sense only jesus does this perfectly And because he is the son of God, only Jesus is capable of fulfilling the purpose of God in our salvation to the uttermost. So if Jesus is not the incarnate son of God, if he's not the son of God, then all that he did and all that he said was not true. He has to be the Son of God. This is what the Scriptures disclose. This is what the Scriptures demand. This is the trumpet call of the Scriptures, the clarion call, that this one who was born in Bethlehem being conceived in the womb of Mary is none other than God the Son, having been incarnate, taking to himself a human body and soul and living among us as a human being with the nature of the Son of God and the nature of humanity in the one person of Jesus. And then going all the way to the fullest extent of God's will to purchase God's people back to him out of the slavery of sin. So what does the scripture alone say about the divinity of Jesus. Now there's a whole lot to say, but let's just take a couple of three verses here and there. First of all, a verse that, some verses that you would be familiar with probably. In the gospel of John, John chapter 1, the word says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now I want to make note of that, Because there is a denomination out there, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then they changed the next statement to say, and the word was a God. A God. A created being. You see, if Jesus is a created being, He cannot be the exact image of the eternal God because that which is created and has a beginning and is not eternity in himself cannot manifest absolutely perfectly him who is eternal. It can't happen. But the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was, was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then remember that fabulous statement in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became incarnate, flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The most important initial revelation and understanding about Jesus is he is the divine son of God. Listen to what Hebrews 1.3 says. Christ is the exact image of God's nature. I've already said that. How can he be the exact image of the nature of God? The exact image of the nature of him who is eternal, and yet Jesus is a created being beginning at a certain time. It won't happen. It, he can only manifest and image God in a partial way. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Remember that? Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Now, if you were to read through the four gospels, you would find many scriptures that clearly demonstrate Jesus' divine supremacy over disease, over death, over demons. You'll see that. And why is he able to do this? You see because he is divine and because of his intrinsic divinity he has authority over all the cosmos and is given that authority by God to be used for the redemption of God's people and in demonstrating his authority and supremacy over disease death and demons what he's doing here, he is declaring to us, he is giving us a picture of how absolute and extensive his authority is as the Son of God. There is not one area of our life that is not touched by and will be totally renovated by and changed by the work of the Son of God. Now, you know, we, we say this. The Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and scripture alone. You know, I just don't believe the Bible. So you haven't proven a thing. You've just used your book to tell me something that it says that I don't accept. Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Where is the proof? that what Scripture alone clearly and consistently and compellingly declares, where's the proof? Where's the proof? The proof is in one event. The proof is in one event. The resurrection. In the resurrection, God declares that his son, that this man Jesus is the incarnation of his son and that everything that Jesus says has done everything about his life is true so how do we know that God loves us well the Bible tells me so well that's nice but that doesn't prove anything Well, how do we know that Jesus died for our sin and that in his death, God was reconciling us unto himself? The Bible tells us. Well, by itself, that doesn't tell me anything. Anybody can write that in a book. But you see, the fact of the matter is that everything about the person and work of Christ is proclaimed as true forever and absolutely substantiated in one event in the resurrection. And in fact, had Jesus not risen from the dead, we wouldn't be here today. This would be a very, very foolish gathering without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't believe in the resurrection. I think it was a made-up story. Oh, really? Have you read history? Do you believe that these men and women were so deceived that after this man died on the cross that they concocted such a bull story for which they were willing to die be burned to death to be cut in two to have their eyes gouged out to have torture all day long in their lives do you believe that if someone knew where the body was or that Jesus actually didn't die but he swooned and kind of came back to life in the coolness of the of the tomb and when they opened it he came out thank you and then he went away and married Mary Magdala, and they lived in India somewhere, and they had kids. Do you believe how many of you in here, that's what you knew for sure, and you're standing on that. Now, you're not getting any money. Your name's not in the newspaper, except in the bad part of the newspaper, and so you're you're standing on that. It's a hoax. It's pretend, and so someone comes up to you, and they tie you to a wall, and they strip you. And they come up to you with a very sharp blade. And they say, one more time, what we're going to do is slice you across the top and the bottom and slice you up and down. And we're going to begin to peel your skin off you if you don't tell us. How many of you would tell? As soon as I saw the weapon, what? He's living in West. We go. His body is buried in Honville. Why didn't anybody confess? Why, Mike? He rose from the dead. He's alive. He's alive and forevermore. He is alive, church. He is. Oh, I know when I watch these science programs and I watch this about evolution and this and that, I don't get any of this. I don't understand it. I don't know how it holds together. But I remember one thing. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And upon that foundation, I stand. Because that's what proves his divinity. But you see, the resurrection not only demonstrates the supremacy of christ it also demonstrates the sufficiency of his work it does both see let's again look at the scriptures alone for the testimony of the sufficiency of the work of christ what do the scriptures say jesus has been on the cross for six hours he's been beaten almost to death And at the end of the six hours, in John chapter 19, verse 30, this man gathers the last of his breath before he releases himself into the Father's hands. He decides when he dies. The Son of God is in control. And what does he say? It is finished. It's finished. What? The work of the redemption of God's people is finished. What does that mean? That means that there is no more work to be done for the salvation the sanctification, and the security of God's people. That's what it means. The bill has been paid in full. I've used this example before, but you go to a store and you buy something and you get a receipt. And in the old days, how many of you remember they used to put that rubber stamp red on it, paid in full? Some of you old folks remember that? Yeah, a couple of us remember that. Paid in full, that's how they used to do it. And you kept the receipt. And so you're walking down the street and out comes the owner of the business screaming and yelling. You owe a penny. You owe a penny. You owe a penny. Legally, do I owe anything? Why? Because the stamp said what? Paid in full. Am I required And even do I have an ability to add to that which has been paid in full? I can't do it. I may just be generous in giving the penny. But there's no requirement because there's no ability. There's no requirement because there's no ability to add to that which has been paid in full. And Jesus said in John 19.30, this is paid in full. It is finished. What does that mean? That everything necessary for the full, final, and forever forgiveness of God's people to be declared as just, not guilty, to be given the righteousness of Christ as their garment, to be adopted as God's children. By the giving of the Holy Spirit. And guaranteed. Their life with God forever in heaven. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Now listen to this. From the perspective of what many have been taught before. And listen to it as if you have never been taught anything before. Listen to this as if you've never been taught anything and you hear this word. When Christ died, sorry, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, You've never heard this before. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, is that a statement that looks like the work of Christ was sufficient? But yet, that's a statement that has not only been taught differently, but that's also a statement that I think all of us from time to time have a problem with in our own personal lives. Because let's face it, you need a favor from God. <laughs> and so what do you do? Come on. how many of us do a little extra? Anybody in here do a little extra just to make sure God is pleased a little more? Anybody? A little extra. Make sure I don't think those thoughts today because I need a blessing from God. Oh keep myself. We get into these things very subtly. But the problem in the reformers day and even today is that this truth of the sufficiency of Christ was being changed. You see, now when we look at the supremacy of the person of Christ, he's the son of God. You are the son of God. The son of the living God. And the sufficiency of his work Thou art the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the one who has come to deliver God's people from the bondage to death and sin. So now when we see the exclusivity of Christ resting on the supremacy and the sufficiency, we can now understand and maybe appreciate a little better what Peter was saying. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And that's a good verse to memorize. It's in Acts 4, verse 12. It's a good verse. So what does this exclusivity of Christ mean for us today and every day? What does it mean? Well, first of all, Christ alone, the exclusiveness of Christ, himself, his person, and his work Christ alone has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. If he were not the divine Son of God, if his work was not sufficient, this would not have been a statement of what has been done. When the Apostle Paul gives you that statement in Colossians 1.13, he says this is a work that is completed. For Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness in his person and in his work, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of God's dear son. He doesn't say, and is transferring us, and we're in the process of being transformed, transferred, and we're hopefully we will get to this place of being transferred, and we will get there. He doesn't say that. He said, this is what has been accomplished at the cross and applied in the resurrection by the giving of the Spirit when Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. What does this mean, Christ, the exclusivity of Christ alone for us? In Christ alone, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. Is there anything more that we can receive from God than he has already given to us in Christ? Anything more? Is anybody waiting for something more? Everything. He didn't say, I'll give you more and more if you will do this and this to get more and more. You see, because when God saves us, He places us in His Son. And His Son is the repository, if you would, in a man of all the blessings and the goodness and the favor and the power and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, of God that there is. There's nothing else remaining. What does it mean for us today? Christ alone, in Christ alone, we have been made the righteousness of God. Righteousness means God's own rightness, purity, and holiness. Righteousness has to do with who God is in himself. And we were unrighteous. And so, the sufficiency of the work of Christ means that in his death and through his resurrection, God has clothed us or covered us or declared us as if to be not guilty and has clothed us with the very righteousness of his own son. This is a forensic or a legal determination by the judge of the universe. That because we were in Christ when he died and paid for all our sin, we were in him in the heart and mind and declaration of God. We were in Christ when he was at the cross. And when Jesus died, God declared, because we were in Christ by the will of God, that all our sin was paid for and that the curse of death was paid for by Christ on our behalf so that in the resurrection of Jesus coming up life eternal life as a man we are now given that same gift of eternal life God declaring us as no longer guilty of any sin there's a declaration about that he has declared that about us it's not the issue that God declares our, what do you call it when you're born into the world with, what do you call it, beginning sin? What is that called? Original sin. And then what has to happen is we begin to sin and we need to have those sins worked off. You see, the understanding of the church in Martin Luther's day was, God really didn't mean that you were literally that way. He just meant that you it was available to you and available to you. And you can get it and you can receive this righteousness and you can continue to get toward it more and more as you progress, as you work your way through the system that they had. In Second Corinthians 5.21, I'm sorry, Colossians uh, 2.10, Christ alone, we have been made complete in him. What does complete mean? Because I think this is an area where we struggle. We're complete in him. It means this, and I just have a few scriptures. I think you see them in your, your handout. Romans 5, one. we we're justified by faith. What does justification mean? You and I have been declared by the righteous judge of all the world that we are no longer guilty of any sin whatsoever. That's the major declaration of God. Therefore, Romans 8.1, there is no, therefore now what? No condemnation. No condemnation because we're in Christ. Third, we are new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creatures in Christ. The person you used to be and the way you used to be in the sight of God Has been changed you have been reconstituted spiritually you have been remade inside spiritually by the Holy Spirit You're not the same anymore In other words, you don't have to I don't have to live the same way I used to live. I can try to live better Did you hear that what did I say I can try to live better is that true? No God's grace is sufficient for me, first having declared me not to be guilty and now giving me the power on a regular and daily basis as I cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to be transforming me. Into the image of his son. It's not that I am trying to do anything. I am yielding. We are yielding with. We are walking with. We are embracing the work of God in us by the spirit. See I told you many times. Years ago I tried. I I stopped trying to uh, obey God. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I stopped that. Years ago. Years ago. I either will obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit or I will obey, my, uh, will obey temptation by the power of my flesh. I'm going to do one or the other. I'm not going to try. Stop trying and start trusting and embracing and obeying the leading and the wooing and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Do you feel like a conqueror? <laughs> Ephesians 1.5, we've been adopted through Christ. Romans 15.16, we are being sanctified. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so during the time of the reformers, and even today, the church had the supremacy of Christ correct. Catholic Church believes in the supremacy of Christ. There may be a few, whatever's here and there that any one of us may disagree with or see a little differently, but basically the charisma, the core, the core teaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was conceived by Mary, by the Holy Spirit in Mary, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, bore the sin of the world, died, raised, was glorified, and is returning, and has sent the Spirit. They believe in the supremacy of Christ. So it wasn't the supremacy of Christ that was where the issue was with the reformers, and it isn't with us today. It's in the sufficiency of his work. You see, because what was happening and what is happening today Is that the work of Christ now is being added to through sacramental requirements. These are the things you have to do. In order to make sure and add to and move toward going to heaven. You have to do things. You see there rose out of the notion, there arose a no- notion that the church had been given the authority to apply and mediate the sacrificial work of Christ through the sacraments as administered by the clergy. That the church had this authority to apply forgiveness, to apply the grace of God in ministering to your needs And you had to work with these and you had to cooperate with these in order for the work of Christ Christ on the cross to be completed in you. They were adding to it. And so rather than depending upon the exclusivity of Christ alone for their salvation and their sanctification and their security, the church taught that a person had to be baptized into the church and then faithfully practice the various sacramental requirements in order to cooperate with and complete the saving work of Christ. And so the most fundamental issue of being saved is being born again. You're not saved unless you're born again. John 3.3. 3, Jesus said, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. But that's been changed into you must be saved baptized by the clergy as an infant unless you're coming to the church as an adult and then at that baptism you were placed into the church you were placed into christ if you would and so many believe that they are saved and are god's children because they were baptized bible doesn't teach that and then there's just a whole myriad of things that come as a result of that. So the reformers began to see these vast fundamental discrepancies. And began to say, wait, 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 wait. Something is drastically wrong here because you're adding to or you're deleting from the word of God. And anything that added to or subtracted from the word of God gutted the work of Christ And created an alternate gospel. Now the question often is. Can a person who is. A member of the Catholic Church be saved. I can tell you the answer definitively. I don't know. Can any of you. Say that the Holy Spirit isn't. Gracious enough to overcome bad doctrine to save someone? Is there anyone in here who has been saved because you had such pure doctrine, therefore God saved you? Or are all of us saved because we had bad doctrine? Amen? And I want to be sensitive about this. We're not condemning people. We're talking about a system that has taken the pure word of God and has altered it. And the danger is that those who depend upon their security and their fellowship and relationship with God through a system of what a man must do, a woman must do, that person is in great danger. Listen again, Brother Keith quoted this a couple of weeks ago. Adding to the work of Christ is the problem. You have to do this. You have to have this happen. You have to have, you know, the holy days of obligation. You have to go through the, the practice of the matter. You have to do these things. In Galatians, Paul is addressing this issue when he says this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. What? Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so what does Paul say then in verse 8? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You know what a curse means? Anathema. In other words, let him be condemned to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed, condemned, and then Chapters later, he says, anyone who receives a work in addition to Christ, he says, you are severed from Christ, you have fallen from grace. This is serious. You see, any additions at all gut the gospel of His power, making the work of Christ insufficient. Now, with all this in view, we can begin to understand why the reform insisted upon the exclusivity of Christ. They were affirming his exclusive supremacy as God's eternal son. And they were affirming his exclusive sufficiency in redeeming God's people from their sin. To save, sanctify, and secure us all the way to heaven. All the way to heaven. You see the problem is. If God saves us. And then requires us to do anything. We're going to fail. Because there was a man without any sin. A perfect man. Sinless man. And he was told just don't just. Just don't do this one thing. This one thing. Just, just one thing. Just one thing. The reason we're here today is because that man did what? That one thing. You see, there's absolutely no hope for any of us to either be saved or be maintained in our salvation if we have to do even one work to maintain it or to buy it or secure it. We won't be able to do that work. Do you believe me? Nobody believes me. You can't do it. How do I know that? Because if it were possible that we could just do one work, just one, just one. Why did God crucify his son? Just one. One. Oh, I know I could do one why did Jesus die well okay he died to bring us in to save us okay fine I got that okay I got that but then in order to be maintained now that my sin in the past has been forgiven and I have to begin to live a life just one work to maintain me all the way to the end I'll never make it. Never make it. You see, by insisting upon Christ alone, the reformers were protesting any alteration to the exclusivity of Christ alone. So today, today the exclusivity of Christ is not only challenged by the sacramental teachings of the church, but also the Culture, hmm? Narrow minded, bigoted, all kinds of phobias. They call us this phobia and that phobia and the other phobia. The challenge you and I are going to receive out there in the world. Is that the culture will say, this is the way to live and it's okay. And we know it's okay because people are enjoying it and doing it. And everybody is doing it. And we're going to be challenged to the exclusivity of Christ. To say, do we participate and believe that? Do we go that way? Do we refrain from that? Do we live this way? Because the culture says we can. And we have to be very careful of swallowing what the culture says we can if the Bible doesn't give us that permission. See, Christ alone is it's, it's a, it's a, it's an archaic notion. It's old. Look how far we've advanced in our technology. Look how far we've come. We are an informed and enlightened society. But see, mostly where we are attacked is in our individual lives, circumstances, relationships, finances, whatever it is. When any of those things, any of those things begin to occur in our lives, we begin to feel the attack Against the exclusivity of Christ. Is what he did sufficient? And in all of that. You hear one question. What is that question? It's a question from the Bible. It's a question which is recorded in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Hath God said. This time. You've sinned too many times. This time, you've gone across the line. This time, God is not going to come through. This time, God won't listen. We hear that, don't we? And it's an attack against the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Either Jesus has paid it all and will maintain it all by his spirit, or he won't. But the good news is what? He has paid it all. And he is maintaining it all. By his spirit. Until the end. So what is our posture? Most basically, and I think this should be very obvious. We have to know the scriptures. We have to be inundated in the scriptures. There are too many here. You are very weak in the scriptures. And because of that, you and your family members and so on are very susceptible to being thrown over, deceived, damaged by the enemy. We need to know the scriptures. We need to believe the scriptures. We need to live the scriptures. And you know, we need to proclaim the scriptures through our living testimony. So that this world will know what Christ alone is real and true. Amen. Let's sing that.
1: Let's go and stand up. In Christ alone. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Christ alone, in Christ alone, who took on flesh body lay light up the world by darkness slain and bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip and as he stands and as he stands in victory This grip on me says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. This is our experience, church. This is who Jesus has saved us to be. He's cleaned us. It's in him alone that our faith is put, and is placed. So let's leave, let's leave this place believing this about our Savior, Jesus. Have a blessed week. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.